Cure International, we're a global network of eight pediatric hospitals celebrating 25 years of helping children with treatable disabilities such as cleft lip and palate, club foot, bowed legs, burn contractures, spina bifida, brain tumors, and hydrocephalus. By establishing pediatric hospitals within countries where disability is often prevalent and overlooked, CURE can provide access to continuous care for children in need. CURE also focuses on spiritual care. From outreach to surgery to the last visit, our ministry is determined to share God's love with every patient and family that CURE meets because knowing God's love brings lasting comfort to those suffering. And because we're all about healing at CURE, we go beyond healing the children and their families by supporting the country as a whole. So children who don't have access to a CURE hospital can still receive world-class treatment where CURE-trained doctors carry on our mission. By partnering with community churches, national healthcare organizations, and local ministries of health, we help build and empower the healthcare systems of our host countries from the ground up. CURE is the children we treat, the communities we serve, the people we work alongside. And finally, CURE is you, our partners who make it all possible. In the years ahead, we aim to double the number of children we serve because the need is growing. So we have to do the same. That means more surgery, more spiritual care, and more healing for the most vulnerable. You've heard God's call to help heal children who are suffering. It's incredible what's accomplished when we work together under our mission of healing the sick and proclaiming the kingdom of God. Well, if you uh, were unaware, we are as a church in this uh, next season of kind of uh, coming together to want to support Cure International. Uh, it's been one of the uh, kind of cornerstones of VBS over the last couple of weeks, which I got the privilege of getting to be there and see the kids do this. I, uh, I had to dance in front of them in order to be there, which uh, was not great, but children are very forgiving, so it worked out. But what I love most about the weeks is, is getting to the end of the week and seeing just how generous these kids have been. For example, just over the course of two weeks, the kids here at this church have raised over $10,000 for Cure International. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. And I think, I think the challenge coming out of that for us is to follow our children's lead, is to say that we want to be like them. You know, the, the kids, we would talk all week about why we were doing this, why we were raising money for Cure International. And the answer is, is because God has given so generously to us that to follow him, we want to be generous people. We want to give to missions and organizations and, and causes that further his kingdom, that celebrate who he is, and offer care for those who need it desperately. And so this is our opportunity as a church to, again, to follow our kids' lead, to follow Jesus' lead, uh, and to live in generosity. So I want to encourage you, jump in however you can over the next few weeks as we give to this cause. Our, our hope is that we can raise in total $150,000 to help Cure build a new hospital in Zambia, to staff that, uh, and so we'd love for you to join in with that. And so I, just as we start today, I just want to pray that God would be at work amongst us as we do this over the next few weeks. So let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the chance to join you in generosity. God, we give because you first gave to us. That's what you tell us. You said us, to us that you so loved the world that you gave your only son, who was the most precious thing that you had. And so God... We want to follow suit. Lord, may all of our hearts be transformed as the kids were this week to give, to be generous, 
to be set free so that we can bless and support what you are doing in Zambia. God, we are grateful for you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, um, <clears throat> I always find kind of the, the midweek time to be a little challenging because I'm trying to think of illustrations for my sermon at the weekend. Uh, but Thursday morning, we have our preaching team where kind of all the pastors sit down together, we chant. And it was very fortuitous that this week, Pastor Brian gave me what is without doubt the best possible uh, opener for a sermon on foolishness. He told me about the world's dumbest criminals. Now, if you didn't know, there's a whole TV show that chronicles stories like this, but I want to share three with you this morning because they are astoundingly dumb. First one is about uh, some thieves who were robbing an ATM and set fire to the money that they were trying to steal. This wasn't an accident. They were trying to open the ATM with a blowtorch. So they melted through the kind of outer frame, not thinking at all that as soon as they're through that, there's just a huge pile of paper that's going to go up in moments. So that did not work out well for them. Another story is uh, a criminal who was uh, burgling. Is that an American phrase, burglary, burglaring? I don't know. Well, I'm English, so we'll, we'll, we'll assume it's an okay word. But uh, the, these guys were robbing a house. They go inside. They rifle through everything. But one of the things that they take is the smartphone of someone who's in the house. And they decide a great idea would be to take a selfie in the house as they're stealing it. And then post that picture to their social media. So the police found them very quickly uh, because they'd posted a picture of themselves robbing the house. Not a great choice. But then this is my favorite. This is, this is from my home country of England. There was a man who tried to rob a Glasgow bookmakers with a cucumber. So he, he hit a cucumber in a black sock and pulled it out pretending that it was a weapon, tried to uh, rob them. Of course, the, the guards at the, at the bookmaker knew ex- exactly what was going on. So they tackled the guy, takes him down. And this is, this is what he told the police when they were arresting him. Am I getting the jail for this? <laughs> Doesn't seem like a bright fellow at all, does he? Now, we're traveling through the book of Proverbs in pursuit of wisdom, and one of the best ways that we can understand wisdom is by understanding its contrast, foolishness. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about foolishness, almost as much as it does about wisdom. And Solomon, he is an incredibly creative writer. King Solomon, who kind of compiled the book of Proverbs, he wants us to understand just how dangerous foolishness is. And so what he does is he, at the opening chapters of the book of Proverbs, chapters one through nine, He has this kind of poetic journey of a father writing to a son about two women, the woman of wisdom and the woman of folly. And across those nine chapters, he kind of unpacks what it means to hear the voice of each of these women and to pursue each of these women and to give your heart to either wisdom or foolishness. And the important point for us today is that each of us are pursuing one of those two characters in our lives, all of us without exception. We are pursuing the woman of wisdom or the woman of foolishness. And Proverbs offers us an opportunity to examine ourselves, to slow down and ask ourselves, which path are we traveling? Who are we heading towards? And it gives us the hope of changing direction if we're on the wrong course. But in order to change direction, we're going to have to see three things. We're going to have to see where foolishness begins, where foolishness multiplies, and where foolishness ends. So let's talk about where foolishness begins. Now, very occasionally in my home, there's a terrifying moment where I'm sitting on the couch and I hear my wife's voice say this to me. Did you hear what I said? 
And I have two choices in that moment. I can fake my way through and take a guess, or I can confess my foolishness, that I have not listened to the voice of my wise woman, right? Happens all too often. That's what happens in the book of Proverbs. Foolishness, the story of foolishness, is about not listening to the voice of wisdom, not listening to the one who's calling out to us. This is what Proverbs 9 tells us. It says in verses 10 through 18, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman of folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house and she takes a seat on the highest places of town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. What we're told is that wisdom calls out to us again and again in the book of Proverbs. It calls out to us, and we have a choice to whether or not we're going to listen to that voice, whether we're going to heed the call of wisdom. But that is not the only one that's calling out to us. We're told in the book of Proverbs that foolishness calls out to us too, and it even says that the voice of foolishness is seductive. It's not how we normally think of foolishness as something that's obviously destructive, but the book of Proverbs said it's seductive, it's enticing. And it offers us an alternative to the path of wisdom. Gerhard von Rad, who's a scholar of the wisdom literature, who says incredible things about the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Proverbs, he says that the definition of wisdom is becoming competent with regard to the realities of life. That's what wisdom is for Gerhard. He says it's becoming competent to the realities of life. And so foolishness is a contrast to that. Foolishness is to be fundamentally out of touch with the realities of life. The fool is one who is fundamentally out of touch with the realities of life. So what are the realities of life that we're talking about? First one is, is this. Foolishness begins with a denial of the reality of God himself. Foolishness begins with a denial of the reality of God himself. We're told in this passage that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. A knowledge of the Holy One, and we're told that the woman of folly knows nothing. Knows nothing of what? Of the knowledge of the Holy One. We're told in Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. When we deny the reality of God, we're immediately stepping off the path of wisdom because we are unmooring ourselves from the source of all wisdom. And when we're unmoved from God, when God is no longer reality that's important for us, we drift into a vast ocean of questions about ourselves, about life. Questions like, what is our hope? What's our significance? What's our value? What is our identity? These are things that without God are very difficult to answer. We have to find lesser things that are not going to hold up. But perhaps that's why the way of foolishness is so seductive because it lures us by promising us that we can recreate ourselves in a new image. Foolishness is the denial of the reality of God and then embracing the call of foolishness allows us to believe 
We can be our own masters. Verse 17 has this really interesting line in chapter 9. It says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. What does that mean? Well, the woman of wisdom is essentially saying this, that you, or the woman of folly, I apologize, is saying this, that you can take for yourself what God offers you freely. That you can, by unrighteous means, by departing from traditional wisdom, find something sweeter for yourself. See, the second reality that fools are out of touch with is that God is not better at his job than we are. Foolishness begins when we believe the lie that we can create something sweeter for ourselves than God can. That's the same lie that was told at the very beginning of the story of God to Adam and Eve. And we all wrestle with that same sensation in ourselves. We believe the lie of folly that we can forge for ourselves a better life than God can offer us. And the great tragedy of foolishness is that it never follows through on what it promises, ever. Foolishness is incredibly destructive in our lives, and more than that, in the lives of those around us, people that we love and care about. So we're told in verse 18, chapter 9, he says, he does not know the one who's listened to the, the voice of folly, doesn't know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. See, the final reality that fools are out of touch with is the reality that there are consequences to living as our own masters. Foolishness begins when we deny the reality that there are consequences to living as our own masters. There's consequences to being led by our own impulses and desires rather than the will and the heart of God. We can't treat or use our body the way that we want and not expect there to be consequences. We can't treat people however we want and expect to have good friends and a strong family. We can't live with ourselves as the center of all life and expect our neighbors won't suffer in some way. Do you begin to see how the biblical portrait of foolishness is different from what we usually expect? See, most often we see foolishness as minor errors in judgment, and yet the Bible says it's far more dangerous than that. Foolishness is a willful rejection of the invitation of God to know Him, to know His care, to know His counsel. It is the decision to place anything, including yourself, as the priority in your life over and against the good God who created you. And when we see where foolishness begins, we see that it is far more common in our lives than we care to admit. Far more common. Second thing that the book of Proverbs tells us is where foolishness multiplies. Where foolishness multiplies. Now I think... It's fairly well-known knowledge at this church that uh, I'm kind of the resident nerd, but I take issue with that because I don't think that I'm the only nerd on the uh, preaching team at all. I may enjoy Marvel movies and Star Wars and all of the kind of traditional nerdy things, but the truth is nerddom is a far wider community than people give it credit for. For example, Jeff is a C.S. Lewis nerd. He's a football nerd. Brian is a sports nerd of various kinds. Joe Scavato is a nerd of podcasts, which is the worst kind of nerd to be. I'm just kidding. There's all kinds of nerds, right? Nerddom is, is kind of a quality that starts in your heart, but it can express itself in many ways. 
You can care deeply about many different kinds of things and pursue it and obsess over it and chase it. And foolishness is very similar to that. Foolishness can be a condition of your heart and mind, but it can find itself expressed in many different ways. There's not one type of fool. In fact, the book of Proverbs tells us about many different types of fools. Proverbs outlines a few of them for us in the very first chapter. It says in Proverbs 1, verse 22, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? In that one verse, there are three types of fools. Three types of fools, and they appear consistently throughout the book of Proverbs. And they are the simple fool, the scoffing fool, and the prideful fool. Now you see, the simple fool, we're told about when it says, oh, simple ones, how long will you love being simple? It's a Hebrew word, pathi. And this simple fool is characterized by being one who's too easily led and influenced by the things around them. They will chase anything that offers them even the mildest affirmation or approval. We're told in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 15, the simple believe everything but the prudent gives thought to his steps. Now it's important to be clear that simple in biblical terms doesn't mean being uneducated or inexperienced. The truth is is that many of the most wise people alive are people who have not a lot of education, not a lot of training. And yet they are people who have learned to give thought to their steps, consideration to their choices, people who are not ruled by their impulses as the simple are. There can even be simple fools in church, people who like to get involved in 10 different ministries but are committed to none. People who chase feelings and experiences over faithful involvement with their brothers and sisters. Constantly searching for whatever will fill them or feed them rather than being stable on solid ground. Second kind of fool is the scoffing fool. The scoffing fool. We're told in that verse 22, how long will scoffers delight in their scoffing? It's a Hebrew word, lasim, sometimes translated as mocker. And so you'll see throughout the book of Proverbs, either scoffer or mocker kind of used interchangeably. And the scoffer is one who despises listening and reasonable discourse. They don't want to talk. They don't want to grow. They want to ridicule. They are wise in their own eyes. And they stir up strife and division. We're told in one of the most cutting Proverbs of all, Proverbs 29.8, scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. You know, there are plenty of scoffers out in the world, especially today. You can go and look on social media and find countless corners where people are tearing one another down, ridiculing one another, mocking one another. Some of those would even call themselves Christians. And they love to insult and ridicule those with whom they disagree. And friends, this is not wisdom. Now, reason critique is a good thing. Actually, even throughout the story of God, God himself will mock occasionally, mock those who are his opponents. But the difference is, as with most foolishness, a matter of the heart. You see, it's not the scoffer's behavior that's the problem, it's their heart. Ridicule has become a habitual response to the scoffer. 
They cease to build up and encourage those around them at all. Dear friends, in our age, scoffing is easy and wisdom is hard. Patient and thoughtful discussions are hard. Graciousness and charity are hard. See, scoffing has infiltrated almost every corner of our culture, hasn't it? It's in our politics, it's in our discussions with our neighbors, it's even in our churches, and we must turn from the path of folly and cease to be people who ridicule and become peacemakers. Scoffers set cities aflame. They bring destruction upon their relationships and they obscure the heart of a God who deals with us gently and tenderly. We have an opportunity as the people of God not to be scoffers. And when we seize that opportunity, we will look different. We will stand out and the world will see the one who's behind our choice. John Dixon, who preaches our church on occasion, he's so good at telling us good reasons why we should be good losers. Good losers. Sometimes we feel kind of in our modern era that we have to ridicule, we have to mock, because we have to defeat our opponents. We have to prove the foolishness of the world. And yet, what John Dixon points out often is that the early Christians felt no need to do this because they were so convinced of Jesus' victory, they didn't need to win their arguments. They didn't need to ridicule their opponents. They could serve them. They could lay themselves down for them, even give their lives for them. That's wisdom. The last kind of fool that's mentioned in Proverbs 1 is the prideful fool. This is the most common word used in Proverbs for fool, the Hebrew word kasil. That's why it's just translated as fool. That last section says fools hate knowledge. The prideful fool is entirely unteachable, inflexible, and obstinate. Don't want to change, don't want to grow. Proverbs 15.5 tells us a fool, Cassiel, despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. See, the prideful fool is in very grave danger because they become, over the course of their lives, more and more incapable of navigating the challenges of life because they don't want to grow. They don't want to change. They are capable of doing things only one way, their own. They don't want to change their schedule to make more space for community and accountability, and so they suffer from isolation and loneliness. They don't want to change the same cycles of destructive behavior. They don't want to change their lifestyle to avoid temptation. They don't want to examine themselves and find places of anger or laziness or unforgiveness. And so they continue to hurt people around them, not dealing with the things that are hidden in their hearts. Following the path of wisdom will often mean that there is constant change and growth, that you'll have to examine yourself in the deepest places of who you are. But it's good. It always leads to life. And once again, sadly, you can find these kinds of fools even in the church. And all too often I have been one of them. Resistant to God's efforts to care for me, and to grow me. There's people like this in Jesus' day. People who say things, I'll follow you, Jesus, until you ask me to give generously. I'm not being flexible there. I'm not growing there. 
I'll follow you, Jesus, until you ask me to forgive my enemies and those who've wounded me. I'll follow you until you ask me to serve those who won't reward me in return. I'll follow you until you ask me to give you my marriage or my sexuality or my parenting or my workplace. See, foolishness is more common than we care to admit. And hopefully at this point you're starting to realize perhaps there's foolishness hidden in the hearts of everyone. I think that that's what Solomon's hope is for us who read these words, is to see foolishness is not something that's far off. It's something that's hidden in all of our hearts. We all too, listen, too, all too often listen to the voice of the wisdom of foolishness. So we need to know how foolishness ends. We need to know where foolishness ends. And we're told in the book of Proverbs where it ends. Told at the beginning of chapter 9. Proverbs 9, verses 1 through 6. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. And she has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread. Drink of the wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. See, Solomon wants us to understand once again, the heart of wisdom is to provide for us, to care for us, to lead us. See, wisdom is not like the woman of folly. It doesn't sit in the high place looking down on us. Wisdom, the voice of wisdom seeks to lift us up. See, if foolishness begins when we believe the lie that we have no need of God, then foolishness ends when we accept his promise that he can lead us better than we lead ourselves, care for us better than we can care for ourselves, and love us better than we can love ourselves. Sometimes after we discover foolishness in our heart, our response can remain unwise. Because what we rush to do is to take charge once again. We say, okay, well, the way we can deal with foolishness is I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to be more open to criticism. I'm going to do me, me, me. And we're missing the point of wisdom. We're missing the point of wisdom. See, if foolishness is about trusting ourselves more than God, then we cannot escape foolishness by trying to do more for ourselves. If foolishness is about not understanding and seeing God's promise and care for us, then the escape is to have a transforming vision of God's grace and wisdom. Not to work our way out of foolishness, but to be carried out of foolishness. To come to our senses and realize that we are completely out of touch with the reality of who God is and what he's done. The reason that we follow the path of foolishness is because we haven't seen him. We haven't tasted and known his goodness. That's what repentance is. It's changing direction, changing what you're looking at, what you're fixing your gaze upon. That's what the message of the gospel is all about, getting in touch with the reality of God's love and care for you, that even in our foolishness, he would love us. And he would give himself for us. 
So you will never let go of your foolishness until you have seen and understood Christ's great love for you. It'll be too difficult to relinquish control, to stop searching after whatever will fill you until you've seen him, until you've heard his voice calling to you to come and know him. In Matthew 7, Jesus is preaching a sermon and he talks about foolishness and wisdom. This is what he says. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Those are the words of wisdom calling out to us. Jesus invites us, just as the woman of wisdom does in chapter 9 of Proverbs, to build our house. Not on our efforts, but on his words. His desire for us is not to experience catastrophe or ruin. It's not to mock us, not to ridicule us, not to point out our flaws and failures, but to desire for us something better. To provide for us something better. He says to build our lives on his words. Well, what are his words? What has Jesus said to us? says, come to me, all who are heavy laden. I will give you rest. That frees the simple fool because he meets all of our needs. He says, take my yoke upon yourselves and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That frees the scoffer because he's gentle and tender. And it frees the proud because you're finally able to learn from one who's perfect. But there's more than that hidden in Matthew 7. Isn't it interesting that the words that Jesus chooses to use in this illustration are the same words in Proverbs 9. Build your house on me, just as the woman of wisdom said. But even more than that, if you read down in chapter 9 of Proverbs, we're told that wisdom invites us to eat her bread and drink her wine. And what does Jesus say to us? Take my body, the bread, my blood, the wine, Jesus invites us as the personification of wisdom to eat what he has provided for us, to drink what he has provided for us. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Saying, I am the wisdom that's called out to you from ages past. To bring an end to your foolishness, you must come to him. To end your foolishness, you have to become a new sort of fool You've got to become a fool for Christ. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul repeats to them over and over again that they must become a new sort of fool. He's a few verses, just from the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians. It says in chapter 1, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Chapter 3, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And in chapter four, we are fools for Christ's sake. 
but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. You see, we're all of us fools. But we can choose what kind of fool we will be. We can be foolish in the eyes of God by choosing to lead ourselves and live apart from his care. Or we can be fools in the eyes of the world by trusting ourselves to Christ. To follow Christ in this life will almost certainly lead many in your life to believe you have become a fool. To trust in a man who offered salvation by allowing himself to be crushed and crucified. To follow a God who calls you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. To serve a king who rules by service and humility and who invites you likewise to find your prosperity in generosity rather than possession. There was once a man so convinced of the wisdom of following this Jesus that he decided to give everything he had to follow him. He moved to the jungles of Ecuador after spending his life in preparation to tell indigenous tribes about this Jesus, about this one who invited us to build our lives on his rock. And the result was he was speared to death by that tribe. The news of his death was broadcast all around the world. It was in Life magazine. And I'm sure that many around the world believed that that man was a fool. And yet that man left us with his own words that said this. He is no fool who gives his life, to, uh, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That man's name was Jim Elliot, a missionary. And the legacy of his choice to become a fool for Christ is that an entire tribe of people in Ecuador were transformed. His wife eventually celebrated with that same tribe who had killed their husband. Stories of grace and redemption and care poured out of it for decades afterwards. Jim Elliot was no fool. He was right. He was right. It was wisdom to give everything he had to gain Christ. And that is the choice that lies before all of us this morning. The choice to choose Christ, who is our wisdom. And he stands ready. Stands ready to receive us, to take us, to care for anyone who would be his fool. Let's pray as we close. God, we thank you for the chance to become your fool. And Lord, we confess that so often we have trusted in ourselves, we have followed the voice of the woman of foolishness by denying the reality of your good care for us, trusting in who you are for us. And so God, I pray that you would do work throughout this Proverbs series, that you would find those corners of foolishness in us, those places where we have not trusted, and Lord, teach us to see the transforming vision of your son. Teach us to be ones who would say with Jim Elliot, we shall be no fools, for we will give what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose.
Lord, we pray these things in your son's perfect, wise name. Amen. We're going to close our service uh, this morning with remembrance of the Lord's table, remembrance of his grace that is greater than our sin. And this table does not belong to Chapel Street, so even if you're visiting with us today for the first time, if you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, uh, you are welcome to share bread and cup with us as we celebrate his love for us. As we pass out the trays, please notice there are two cups stacked together in each slot. Take both cups and just hold them until everybody is received, and I will lead us through the remembrance of bread and cup. Let's bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, on a weekend when we prepare to celebrate uh, our nation and the freedoms that we enjoy, uh, and we do so gladly and with gratitude, we want to pause today to remember you as the one who sets us free, free from the power of sin and death that your grace indeed is greater than all our sin. So as we take bread and cup once again, remind us by your Spirit that you are Savior, you are King, you are Shepherd, and you are Friend. Meet us here again at this table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The New Testament tells us that on the same night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus met with his closest followers around a table, and at some point, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them with these words, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of him. In the same way, he poured the cup. He said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. The Apostle Paul reminds us that, that as followers of Jesus, each time we drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. Do this in remembrance of him. Just before the benediction, I want to remind you, if you would like to participate in the Serve the World a project to give to the Cure Hospital in Zambia, you can do so either online or using the app on your phone, or just write a check and write Serve the World on the memo line, drop it in the boxes in the back. We appreciate that very much. And again, our goal that these children have helped us get a good start to is to reach $150,000 by uh, early August. So thank you so much for that. Receive now the benediction. May we go now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whose grace we are set free from sin, and who is in himself the wisdom of God. Amen. Have a great week.